Hal Lindsey, Doctrines of Salvation Number 7, Finished Work of Christ, Subtitle A, Propitiation. All right, we have, all right, we have come in our study to the work of Christ on the cross. I want to show a diagram here which will give you an orientation to how these various doctrines relate to each other. Now we've seen that man is in rebellion against God and he's turned his back on God and the scripture says he's at enmity with God, hostile in mind, Ephesians chapter 4, verses uh, 16 through 18, and also Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Man is at enmity with God, he has minus R, that is, he has no righteousness, no ability to produce righteousness which God can accept. And man is now separated from God by a great barrier. What are the parts of the barrier? What's the first one? God's righteousness and justice. That's right. You're going to get tired of seeing this, but I want you to learn it so repetition won't hurt you. God's absolute righteousness and absolute justice is the first part of the barrier. Secondly, sin. And what are the aspects of sin? Thought, word, and deed, and nature. Right. All right. Nature, thought, word, and deed. All right. What's next? Slavery. To whom? Slave to Satan. And incidentally, a slave to sin. Romans, or I should say John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. Man is said to be a slave of sin there. All right, what's the last part of the barrier? Spiritual death. All right. This is the barrier which separates all men from God. This is the universal barrier. There's no distinction between any man. There are some people who are a little better than others, but they're all behind the barrier. Now, God has an answer for this barrier, and the answer is the cross. And there are actually four doctrines which cover what Christ did on the cross. There are four great truths which tear this barrier down. And these four doctrines are things that Christ did universally for every man that would ever live. This is what we call the finished work of Christ. This has already been accomplished for every man who's ever lived at the cross. Now the first doctrine 
is propitiation. No, you're all excited about propitiation. I think you will be, because that's the greatest love word in the Bible. Do you understand it? Now, the work of Christ on the cross in propitiation is that which satisfied God's righteousness and justice so that he is free to love us. And we'll go into detail about that later. All right, then the next great thing accomplished by Christ on the cross is redemption, which means to set free from slavery by paying a ransom. And this relates, redemption does away with the barrier of sin in all of its forms and with our slavery to Satan. So it is directed against this, and it removes sin and slavery as a barrier to fellowship with God. Propitiation removes God's problem of righteousness and justice as a barrier. All right, then, next is the truth of substitutionary death. Christ died in our place, and that removed spiritual death as a barrier because it set God free in his substitutionary death to give us new birth. All right? Now, all of these truths together, that is, propitiation, redemption, and substitutionary death, amounts to another great truth called reconciliation. Now, the word reconciliation has to do with bringing two people into fellowship. The word that's used means that one is at enmity and the other one loves. And so the one who loves sets about to remove all the barriers that separate from fellowship. And so reconciliation simply means it is all that Christ did on the cross to remove the barriers between man and God. Now, reconciliation is manward. And reconciliation is actually the featured doctrine of the gospel. It's the one that should be featured because reconciliation is that which, when we tell a person, look, God so loved you, that he went to the cross and that he removed every barrier that stood between you and him. And so now God ain't mad anymore and he says he accepts you just like you are and he forgives you. There's only one thing that can keep you from God and that is to reject this uh, great gift of pardon. So. Reconciliation then presents the fact that God has loved man and he's already done something about it. He's removed all barriers. And so this takes the enmity that's in man's heart and begins to do away with it. Have you ever uh, tried to be friendly with someone who thought you really had something against them? I have. I have a guy who had heard rumors that I really had some things against him. He had done me some dirt. And so 
He was suspicious of me and he was afraid of me because he knew that I knew what he had done. And uh, he was afraid of retaliation. But when I went to this guy, and boy, he started off, he wasn't even hospital, hospitable. He started off the conversation with all kinds of hostility. And I just began to tell this guy that, look, I love you, and it doesn't make any difference what you've done. The guy just completely turned around. The enmity was all gone. Now, you see, every man has in his heart an enmity toward God because he's under a guilt complex and he's suspicious of God and he thinks God is going to judge him so therefore he doesn't want to admit there's a God. And the way to tear that down is to show, look, God so loved you that he removed all the barriers and he says, look, all you've got to do is accept it as a gift. They don't know what to do with that. And this removes the enmity. That should be the feature of the gospel. The power of the gospel is in its freeness. If you add anything to the work of Christ, you make some human merit involved, then you've taken away the power of the gospel. Because man always thought God couldn't be that good anyway. And so they say, well, yeah, God will accept me if I vow that I'll completely surrender myself and all that jazz. And so you rob the gospel of its power. But the gospel will save the most wicked sinner in the world if you present it in grace. Now, here are these great truths which represent the finished work of Christ. And here's how they relate to the barrier. Propitiation relates to it toward God. It relates to dealing with the problem of God's offended justice and God's broken law. Redemption has to do with man's acts of sin and his slavery to Satan. Of course, sin in all of its forms, not just his acts. And Christ's substitutionary death, he died in my place, relates to my spiritual death. Paid the penalty for it. And reconciliation means that the whole thing has been accomplished, that all the barriers have been removed by Christ. And this means for all men. There's a sense in which all men have been savable. And this is why I said earlier, there's only one sin that will keep men from God and put them in hell forever. And that's the sin of turning down Christ. That's the sin of not believing in Jesus Christ. This barrier, with all of its comp components, is no longer the issue. And when you present the gospel, you should never make an issue of these things. The one thing that you make an issue of is the one sin that will send a man to hell, and that is, will you believe in Christ? That's what the issue should be. All right. Let's talk about propitiation as the first part of the finished work of Christ. The root meaning of this word in the original, that is its usage down through the history of the Greek language and the Hebrew language, is this. It means the turning away of wrath 
by offering by the offering of a sacrifice, the turning away of wrath by the offering of a sacrifice. Now, its Old Testament and New Testament meaning is this. Jesus Christ bore the full fury of God's just wrath against the sins of all mankind. Jesus Christ bore the full fury of God's just wrath against the sins of all mankind. So that now God's righteousness and justice are satisfied. He is free, and he is free to deal with all men in love. Now that's a, as concise a definition as I can get, but that doesn't really explain it. But I want you to get the concise definition. God's righteousness and justice are satisfied, and he is free to deal with all men in love. But the supreme meaning of the word propitiation is satisfaction. That's a synonym for propitiation. It means satisfaction. And it deals directly with the wrath of an offended God against sin. It's a removal of wrath. Now let me show you. You know, some of the liberal theologians today say, oh man, if you teach propitiation as a removal of wrath this is attributing to god a heartless attribute and so they they try to do away with this inherent meaning of the word which means that it is dealing with the wrath of a just god against sin but let me show you something in the old testament god's attitude of wrath against sin is mentioned 585 times in the old testament 585 times. Now, if you want a good Bible study tool, let me recommend Young's Analytical Concordance. That will cost you a few bucks, but it's one of the best and the most useful study tools that there is. Young's Analytical Concordance. And you look up wrath in there. It'll show you every time it's used, and it'll break it down by the different original words. Categorizes the word by its original words. In the New Testament, we have Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where the word arge is used. O-R-G long E. Arge. And this is a word for an attitude of abiding wrath. Now this is in contrast with another Greek word for wrath, thumos, T-H-U-M-O-S. Thumos means a flash of anger, which is like a fire, like a flash fire. It flashes anger and then it's over as quickly as it started. But arge is a continuing attitude of abiding wrath. Somebody back here. Oh, excuse me. 
Alright, now all of these passages that I'm about to give you use the word arge. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth with unrighteousness. Now that shows that there is an attitude of abiding wrath from God against the sin of man. And this is, of course, a, a facet of his justice. God would not be God if he were not perfect justice, and justice burns against that which falls short of God's perfect law. All right, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Now this verse says we were born as objects of God's wrath by nature. This is talking about the, f the fact that all men are born spiritually dead, and that they're born with a nature which is at enmity with God. And so by, by natural birth, we're born as objects of God's wrath. Romans chapter 4, verse 15, says that the person who is trying to come to God by the principle of law is under God's wrath because the law brings wrath upon those who are under it. And it says that's the only thing that the law can produce. The person who's trying to live before God under a principle of law, and law means any, any system of uh, human effort and merit to come to God, that they're under the wrath of God because we can never live up to God's law and justice can't overlook the violation of the law so the one who's under that standard is under the wrath of God. All right? John chapter 3, verse 36 says, God's wrath against sin is turned away from the one who believes in Jesus, but it abides upon the one who doesn't believe in Jesus. So it shows that there's only one way to get out from under this abiding wrath, which eventually will consume the objects. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 talks about this wrath. Let's turn there. crucifixion of Christ. This is the era in history that we're in after the cross. There is a time of seven years which will immediately precede the coming of Christ back to this earth, the second coming, a period of seven years which will be the period of maximum expression of this wrath toward the sins of man. And that's called in the first Thessalonians, it's called the wrath to come. And it speaks of this seven-year period which most theologians call the tribulation, the seven years which immediately precede the coming of Christ. 
And that's when on earth there's going to be an expression of this wrath against sin. And this is what it says in verse 9. For God has not destined us, the believer, for wrath, but for the obtaining of salvation, or literally deliverance, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a promise that the one who is a believer here will be delivered from the wrath to come. Won't be here. Before that wrath falls, we're going to be caught up. All those who are believers and are alive at that point, we're going to be caught up in the clouds in the twinkling of an eye and be changed from mortal to immortal on the way up. And about the only thing the world will know about this, it says it's going to happen so fast that no one will really see it. It's in the twinkling of an eye. Every living believer will be caught up to meet Christ in the air before this seven years starts. It's about the only thing the world will hear is the big boom when the Christians crack the sound barrier going on the way up. to some passages which talk about propitiation and what it means. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Let's start with... Uh, here it's talking about those who believe being given the very righteousness of God and it says being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus it's interesting the word gift here is Dorian D-O-R-E-A-N in the original and it means to give something without a cause in fact, it's translated without a cause in John 15, 25, the same word, where Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. That's the same word used. This means to give something without any cause in the one receiving it. And this means that we are declared the very righteousness of God because of no cause in us, absolutely nothing that would recommend us for the gift. And it says it's by his grace means God does it all. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now here's a, a tremendous fact. Let's say that here is eternity past and here is eternity future. And here's the cross. Now the Bible says in verse 25 that Christ 
died to satisfy the righteousness and justice of God and turn away wrath from those who believed in God in the Old Testament before the cross, the Old Testament time. So in a very real sense, the shadow of the cross reached back and covered all of those who had believed in the past. They were saved by believing in the provision that was coming. Now, in verse 26, it says that he is publicly displayed as a propitiation to demonstrate God's righteousness for declaring the believing sinner righteous in the future. Verse 26 refers to the future or the New Testament era. And so the shadow of the cross reaches out and covers all men's future too. So what Christ did on the cross covers all men, past and future. Yes, sir. D-O-R-E-A-N. Now, the word that is used here for propitiation is this word, Killa Serion. Killa Serion in the original. And this drives us back to the Old Testament because this is the Greek word that is used to translate the Hebrew word for mercy seat. You see, God told Moses how to build some special furniture for a place of worship in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. That was the place where all of the things that Christ would do when he came and died on the cross was illustrated. And part of that was the mercy seat. Now, this word hilasterion is translated mercy seat in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5. The same word translated propitiation here. Hebrews 9, 5. Now, here is... The Old Testament representation, which really illustrates what propitiation is. God told Moses to make something that was called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant <laughs> Really great pencil. The Ark of the Covenant was made of acacia wood and it was overlaid with gold. This, you can learn about how it was constructed in Exodus chapter 25. 
Now, everything about this, this furniture that God told Moses to make was symbolic and uh, was figurative of the person and work of Christ. Now, the wood represented the humanity of Christ, and the gold represented the deity of Christ. Now, the top, or the lid, was made of solid gold, and this is what became known as the mercy seat, or this word hilasterion, which means the place of propitiation. It became known as the mercy seat. Now, God told Moses exactly how to construct this thing, and he told him to make a replica of a replica of the angels called the cherubim. And he said, make them with their wings outstretched toward each other, facing each other. The wings were to be out over like this. And they were, he, uh, God told Moses to make these with their faces looking down at the mercy seat. Now, God told Moses to do a strange thing after that. He said, Moses put inside of the ark these three things. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 through about 6 describe this for you, what was put in the ark. First, God told Moses to put a pot of manna inside of the ark. Now manna was a food which was rained out of heaven for 40 years for these people. It was a supernatural food that God gave them. But after the people had this food for a while, they got tired of it and they started griping about it and saying they wanted some variety to their diets. They started saying, boy, we wish we had the food we had back in Egypt, which was virtually slop. But uh, God expressed his anger about that because after all, no one was sick for 40 years, so it must have been pretty good food. And so God says, put the manna in the pot and put it in the ark because this became a symbol of man's rejection of God's provision. Then there was a rebellion within the camp of Israel against Moses and Aaron's leadership. And so God called the rebel leaders to stand before him and to stand uh, there with Moses and the symbol of leadership in that day was a wooden rod, a wooden staff. And so he told Moses to hold his, uh, he had Mo Moses' staff held by Aaron. He said, now have Aaron hold the, your staff out, Moses. And the rebel leader was told to hold his staff out. And he said, the one that sprouts leaves is the one I've chosen to be the leader. Well, they both held their staffs out, and the one that Aaron held sprouted leaves. And so... 
That became a symbol of man's rejection of God's leadership. So that staff was put in here. But the most important thing that God told him to put in there was this. When Moses came down from the mountain where he had received two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments written on them by the very finger of God, he found that the whole nation of Israel was in rebellion and they had gone into idolatry and they were in gross sin. And Moses was so angry that he threw those two tablets of stone down and they broke. And God said, put those broken stones with the Ten Commandments in the ark. So here the, the broken stones were put inside the ark. Now, what we have here is a symbol of the sin of man. In the first place, we have a symbol of man's rejection of God's provision. Second place, we have a, a symbol of man's rejection of God's leadership. And in the third place, we have a symbol of man's rejection of God's moral law. Together, they, they are a symbol of the, the sin of man. Now, this covenant, or this ark, was put in the holy of holy places within this tent God had. It had two compartments. And the back third of this tent had a heavy veil in front of it. And only the high priest could go in there once a year. And that's where this sat. The rest of the time it was always covered. But once a year on the Day of Atonement, the blood of a sacrificed lamb would be taken by the high priest into the Holy of Holies and it would be sprinkled over the top of this mercy seat and here is what this symbolized it tells us about the work of Christ you see these two angels were both cherubs and the cherubs are always associated with the holiness of God, and, the, and they are shown to be the guardians and vindicators of God's holiness. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 13, verse 14, verse 27, and verse 28. Also Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. So these angels which were made in image form here are symbols of God's holiness and the vindication of it. One angel represented the absolute righteousness of God. The other angel represented the perfect justice of God. Now, when justice looked down upon the symbols of man's sin, justice said the wages of sin is death and separation from God. When righteousness looked down at the symbol of sin, righteousness would say, man is no longer like me. He cannot have fellowship with me. But... When the blood was sprinkled over the mercy seat, what did the angel see? Blood. The blood of a sacrifice who had borne the wrath 
in man's place. And so, righteousness would look down and see the blood of an innocent sacrifice, who died as a substitute, and say, I'm satisfied. And justice would look down and see the blood and say, he was satisfied, and therefore, the holiness of God was vindicated, and God was free not to pour his judgment upon man. Now, this was an illustration of what Christ would do. This right here is a symbol of the work of Christ. And one more thing in, in symbol that I want to get across here. This became, now this golden lid was said to be a throne, the throne of God, because God said that he dwelt between the cherubs. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, God said this, There will I meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim. I am is Hebrew for plural. Cherubim means cherub. All right, God would manifest himself over the mercy seat between the cherubs. Now, this was a throne of judgment until the blood was sprinkled, and then it became a throne of mercy, and that's why it's called the mercy seat. And this is why God could, could meet man here, because his righteousness and justice had been satisfied. And in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2, God said, For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. This was the place where a man, a sinner, could meet a holy God. Now, the typology here is beautiful. The Old Testament believer learned about what this Messiah was going to do through this. He learned about how God would save man. In the first place, the ark is a symbol of the person of Christ because placed in the ark were the representation of the sins of man. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says this of Christ. It says... Uh, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree. Christ bore our sins in his own body, and the consequences for them. And another symbol, of course, is that when Christ hung upon the cross, all of the wrath that was due to fall on you and do to fall on me, for every sin I would ever commit, in thought, word, or deed, fell upon Christ. And it was by this that righteousness and justice were satisfied. We can put it this way. Here's man in rebellion against God.
Here's the barrier. Sin in its various aspects. Now here's God. The sovereign. He's absolute righteousness. He's perfect justice. He's love. Eternal life. Omniscient. Or he's omniscient. Omnipotent. Omnipresent, immutable, and veracity. When man sinned, man created a polarity within the very... You should have that in your notes. That shouldn't be any question to you. Uh, when man sinned, this sin created a polarity within the very character of God. Because... God's righteousness looked down at man and said, Man is no longer like me. God's justice looked down upon man and said that man must be judged because justice must equitably administrate God's perfect law, which emanates from his righteousness. So justice looked down and the wrath of God had to be expressed toward man. But as justice to the same intensity that justice burned toward sinful man, God's love yearned to bring him back. And so there was this polarity between the two at these attributes of God. On the one hand, God's love which reaches out to his enemies and is selfless which loves those who hate God, reached out and wanted to bring man back. On the other hand, God's justice burned toward God. And God could not express his love toward sinful man at the expense of righteousness and justice. There are certain things God can't do. God cannot express one attribute at the expense of another. So just because God is love doesn't mean God can forgive people. And so it was here that within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that the second person elected to come down and become what we are, only he is perfect righteousness, and then by his own will he took upon himself on the cross the sin of the whole world. And in so doing, the chief thing he did was the work of propitiation, which means that he took as a substitute all of the poured out fury of a holy God against the totality of sinful man. No wonder Christ, when he had gone through every kind of physical punishment that could be thrown at him, no human being could have lived through it except Jesus. And he had his face destroyed by soldiers beating him in the face before he ever got to the cross. His back was laid wide open with a cat of nine tails used by the Roman whip. He hadn't had any sleep. 
And the scripture says he no longer looked human by the time they nailed him to a cross. He had been so physically beaten and emaciated. That's in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, where it predicts that he would no longer look human. His face would be so disfigured. And he never let out one cry of pain through all of that. But when darkness shrouded the earth and the cup that he shrunk from in the garden was passed to him, he screamed out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason was because at that moment, fellowship between the Son of God and God the Father and God the Spirit was broken. And the full fury of divine justice that was due every sin that would ever be committed in thought, word, or deed, or nature was poured out on him. And no mere man could have taken it. It would have consumed a mere man. And that's when he screamed out, My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? And after three hours, as the light began to come up, it was then that Jesus shouted with a voice of triumph, It is finished. Which literally means paid in full. He had paid in full for every sin that man would ever commit. And he had satisfied the demands of righteousness and justice against every sin that would ever be committed by man. Now, when he did this, he set God free to pour out his love upon the human race who do not deserve it and that love poured out on the basis of the cross is what we call grace. It's that which man can never deserve or ever earn. So through propitiation, God set himself free to deal with man in unmerited favor, in grace. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, because of this, when a person believes in Christ, he's turned around. You see, God never turned his back on man. Man turned his back on God. And so propitiation is not the appeasement of a heartless God, but the provision of a loving God to turn away his just wrath, which would have fallen on you. Now, when man accepts this propitiation, it's true of everybody, but it's only effective when you believe in Christ. But when we do, we are brought to the other side here, and God is free to deal with me always in love. God does never have to, God never has to deal with me in righteousness and justice again. Listen, if God ever dealt with you on the basis of righteousness and justice, there wouldn't be anything left of you. You'd be consumed. But this is what I call the holiness bypass. God has made it possible to bypass his holiness in dealing with us 
even though we're sinners, even though we're still with sin natures as believers, he deals with us only on the basis of love. And he set himself perfectly free to do it. And the great truth, the great relevance of this to my daily life is to remember, God ain't mad anymore. He doesn't have to be angry with me no matter what I do. He doesn't have to turn his back on me because Christ has already borne the wrath that was due the sins I haven't committed yet. How many of your sins were future to the cross? For how many sins did Christ die? How many sins are you forgiven when you believe in Christ? That's right. Don't you ever forget it. And so Christ has set God free to forgive us. Now, I just want to give you the other statement, the other passages of Scripture where this word is used. And then we'll close. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. And the truth added here is that God, the second person, had to lay aside his divine attributes, or lay aside the use of his divine attributes, and become a true man in order to be the propitiator. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Christ's work of propitiation is shown to be sufficient for the sins of the whole world. He has so satisfied the righteousness and justice of God that God is free to accept the worst sinner on the basis of grace. It says he is the propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2. 1 John 4, 10. Here it shows that Christ's Christ sacrifice is our propitiation is God's supreme demonstration and proof of his love for us. If you want to know whether God loves you or not, you take a look at what Christ did right here. The Bible says herein is love, 1 John 4.10. Not that we love God, but that he first loved us. You see, we didn't love God. The Bible says the, the carnal mind is enmity against God. It can't love God. It hates God. So it's not that we love God, but that he first loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means he gave his own son to satisfy his own justice so that he would be free to deal with us in love. And so this is the first part of God's work through Christ on the cross. It's the first part of the finished work of Christ. Propitiation removed God's righteousness and justice as a barrier to fellowship with man and God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I pray that this great truth might be shown to be what it really is, the foundation of any Christian experience. May each one have brought home deeply into their inmost hearts and subconscious by the Holy Spirit the meaning of this and its relevance to everyday life so that no one may be put under the trap of guilt complex, under the trap of thinking that because they failed God that he's now turned his back on them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This concludes Hal Lindsey's lecture on Doctrines of Salvation, number 7.
finished work of Christ, a propitiation. Please use the fast forward to the end of this tape. Thank you. Now this comes, it should be O here. This comes from the Greek word agora, A-G-O-R-A, the verbal form, and the agora was the market, the slave market. And so this word came to mean being set free from the slave market by paying a ransom, but it emphasizes the terrible place from which you're purchased. That's its emphasis. Now this word is used in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Then there is uh, another word, it's, a, it's an intensive form of the word agorazo, it's ex agorazo. They add the uh, preposition which means out of, and it emphasizes that being purchased out of the slave market never to be set up for slavery again. Now, here is an interesting thing. Extremely interesting. This word, and another word I'll give you in a moment, is found on many inscriptions within the temples of the ancient heathen gods, particularly of the Temple of Zeus. There's one that was found, there were several uh, ancient manuscripts found in uh, the Temple of Zeus in Athens. And this word was used in the case where uh, a man would purchase the freedom of a slave and he would want to set the slave free forever so that he could never be made a slave again. In other words, once a person was exagorazoed, so to speak, he could never be put in slavery again. He was to remain a, a free man until death. Now this is the way he would do it. He would bring the slave to the priest of Zeus and he would take the slave and he would pay the money of ransom to the priest and then the priest would sell the slave to Zeus. In other words, he would both be set free from slavery by ransom price, then he would be sold to the Greek god Zeus. And once he became the property of Zeus, he could never be put into slavery again. I think you see the implication of this word as it's used in the New Testament. It's used in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, and Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, where it showed that the work of Christ on the cross so completely paid the price of our sins and, re and removed us from the authority of sin and Satan, that we can never be enslaved again because we have been made the property of the Almighty God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 20 says, For you were bought with a price, and your body is not your own. It belongs to God, you see. Therefore glorify God in your body. Now the reason God has a 
call on us is because he bought us. He bought us out of the slave market of sin. And he says, now, you ha he doesn't say you have to serve me, but he simply says it would be a fitting thing, wouldn't it? But rather he seeks to win our hearts by love by showing us what he did for us and how he redeemed us, the terrible price of redemption. It's like a story that's told of a happening in the Roman Empire. There was this vicious and wicked slaveholder who was in the Roman slave market to purchase some slaves, and there was this stranger who came to town who was a wonderful man, and he, was, he would come to the slave market and buy slaves, and then he wouldn't take them home. He'd set them free. And so here was this slave on the slave block, and the bidding started, and this vicious slave owner started bidding for him. But this wonderful man started also bidding for him. And finally the price got to a dizzy height. And finally the good man made the last and the final bid. He just upped the ante so high that the wicked slaveholder couldn't match it. And so as he was paying the ransom price to the slave market owner, the slave marched over behind his new master and uh, prepared to follow him. And this good man who had bought him turned around and said, you're free to go. You're a free man. And he started walking off, and the slave said, I'm a free man, but I want to follow you and I want to serve you. Now, in a sense, this is what Christ does with us. He says, you're free. He sets you free from slavery to sin. He sets you free from the jurisdiction of the law. And he sets you free from the authority of Satan in what he did in redemption. And that's why we have a verse like Romans 12:1. I beg you on behalf of the mercies of God. The mercies of God are all the things that he's done for us without a charge. I beg you on behalf of the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your acceptable and spiritual service to God. You see, God doesn't make us serving. He just presents what he did for us, and he says, I beg you on behalf of these mercies that you present yourself once and for all to me as available to my spirit so that through my spirit you may serve me. And that's all included in this idea of redemption. Now there's another word. P-E-R-I P-O-I-E-O. Peripoia-O. Peripoia-O. This is translated redemption in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And this word emphasizes gaining possession of, or buying 
so that something becomes your possession. And this actually says that God, God gained possession of us with his own blood. Acts 20, 28. This emphasizes the fact that you have become the possession of God through redemption. Now this is all of the verbs that are translated redemption in the New Testament. Now here are some of the nouns. The words apolutrosis. This is probably the most powerful word used. This is used whenever a slave was exagorazoed and sold to the God, and then he was said to be apolotrosis, redeemed. And apolotrosis means it emphasizes the being set free from slavery, and it means to be in a state of total freedom so that you can never be a slave again. It's accomplished by paying of a ransom. Now this is used in Romans chapter 3, verse 24. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it emphasizes that our souls and spirits are set free from bondage to sin, Satan, and the jurisdiction of the law. We'll have a lot more to say about that aspect when we get to how salvation is applied. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23, the word apolotrosis is used. But in this case, it refers to the body, not your spirit, your physical body. And it shows that Christ also paid the price, the ransom price, for the bondage of your body. The only reason your body suffers, suffers sickness and death today is because of the effects of the fall, the sin. And Christ has paid the ransom price for our, the redemption of our bodies, which has not taken place yet, but it will take place in the resurrection. The very body that you're sitting in right now is one day going to be raised incorruptible. As a matter of fact, the redemption of the particular bodies I'm looking at out in the audience right now will probably take place in this generation without seeing physical death. You figure that one out. All right, here is the word Lutrosis. Oh, I'm writing in Greek. L-U-T-R-O-S-I-S. Lutrosis. And this is the word which means to uh, set free. It's, it's the noun form of the word lutrao. It means to set free. I'd like for you to turn to this passage, Hebrews chapter 9. 
Hebrews, the ninth chapter, verse 12. Page 379. Here Christ is being contrasted with the shadows of the animal sacrifice. The animal sacrifice system of the Law of Moses and the Old Testament sacrifices were merely a shadow of which Christ is the reality. They were a type, they were a figure of what would occur in the work of Christ on the cross. And so here the writer begins to show the infinite superiority of Christ as a sacrifice as contrasted with the animal sacrifices which had been temporarily provided by God. He's showing Look, the animal sacrifices were good, but Christ is infinitely better. And he's trying to get these Jewish people to, to stop playing around with animal sacrifice now that that which they predicted has come and been fulfilled. So he says in verse 12, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal Redemption. Now, it's very important to get the point here that eternal is applied to the word redemption. Once Christ accomplished redemption on the cross, it was sufficient to give eternal setting free from slavery to sin, Satan, and jurisdiction of the law for anyone who accepts it by faith. It is an eternal thing that's already been accomplished when Christ said it's finished on the cross. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, and this is the practice in the Old Testament, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now here is the great practical impact of redemption. When I believe in Christ, I am to realize that God has set me free forever from the jurisdiction of the law. That is, I don't have to account to God by the law anymore. His Spirit writes the law in my heart through a new covenant. His Spirit produces, as I see the image of Christ studying the Word, that very image in my heart, and then gives the power and the desire to follow that path. So I don't need an external law of any kind. And not only that, I am set free from the consequences of sin. When I sin as a Christian, I no longer have the same relationship to it. God does not count my sins against me, and we'll see a lot more about that when we talk about justification. Now, what does this, what practical import does this have in my daily life? You remember I was talking about the sin, guilt, and estrangement? 
unless I understand the effectiveness and the efficacy of redemption, then whenever I sin, Satan will come in and get me to feel guilty about it, begin to uh, condemn myself. I will begin to feel that God has turned his back on me, that somehow I'm just not quite as accepted with God as I was. Therefore, I've got to get off and pray for three or four days. Or I've got to vow to study my Bible about three or four hours more a day. See, what you're doing is making restitution there. You're trying to earn God's acceptance again. And this causes you to have an evil conscience, which means a guilt complex. And your conscience has to be cleansed. Now, how, does, how is my conscience cleansed? By remembering what Christ did for me at the cross. Remembering that the moment I accepted Christ, I was forgiven sins, past, present, and future. But if you don't have this cleansing by believing what Christ did, you go into a guilt complex which produces estrangement and you start trying to justify yourself or trying to do things to make up for what you've done, which is self-righteousness, or you go to indifference, which can result in Christian agnosticism, where you say, let's have a party. And the result of all of this is dead works. A dead work is something that you produce by the energy of the flesh. Everything that is not produced in you by your dependence on the Holy Spirit is a, is a dead work. And so it says that the work of the redemption of Christ is that which gives us a cleansed conscience so that we can come boldly to God and not be guilty of doing dead works. Do you know that many Christians sin by not sinning? Sin by not sinning. Whatsoever is not of faith is what? Sin, Romans 14, 23. So if a girl does not commit sexual intercourse, by the energy of the flesh, what is that? It's sin, because she did it by her own efforts. Now, I'm not saying she should go ahead, but I'm saying, because God definitely does not like that. But what I am saying is the way that we are to live the Christian life is by depending on the Holy Spirit so that he gives the strength to keep us moving along God's will. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, the, the application of this redemption again is given in verses uh, 19 through 22 of Hebrews. Let's look at that for a moment. Let's begin with verse 14. Well, I'm going to expound this in more detail later. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The word sanctified means to be set apart as God's possession. Now, the moment you believe in Christ, you're set apart as God's possession, and therefore you're sanctified. 
and therefore your name is St. Joe, St. Helen, St. George, and so forth. Every believer is a saint because every believer has been set apart in Christ as God's possession. So what's true of the person who is set apart? He is perfected for all time by the work of by the finished work of Christ on the cross. And the greatness of this is brought out by what follows. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and upon their minds I will write them. Now how does how does this occur? How do we get the law upon the heart and upon our minds have them written? The Holy Spirit, that's right, somebody got it over here. God can trust us without law because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit today. Because the Holy Spirit writes upon our desires and our inner motivation the law of God, where the old nature doesn't rebel. And this is part of the new covenant that was put into effect when Jesus died on the cross in redemption. And it says, and he then says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now God sees every sin that you commit. That's not the point. The point is he doesn't count that sin against you. He can't. It would be the law of double jeopardy. Christ has already paid for all of your sins. Therefore, God does not count your sins against you. And that's why it says he remembers them no more. And it goes on to say, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. There doesn't need to be because sin has already been taken care of at the cross. So there's no more need for any offering. Since, therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, the holy place is the very presence of God. In prayer, as we count upon our union with Christ, the fact that we are in, seated in the heavenlies, in him at the right hand of God right now, we can go into the very presence of God. And it says we can come there with confidence. The reason is in verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. And that sincere means honest. With an honest heart. In other words, because of redemption, we can draw near to God in our heart and be honest with him. We can come just as we are, without covering up, without rationalizing, Without self-justification, because of redemption, we can come honest with an honest heart and just acknowledge what we are before God, no matter what we've done. And we can come with an honest heart in full assurance of faith. Now, what does this full assurance of faith mean? This means we can come because we have full assurance of faith. God is not counting our sins against us. The moment you sin, the one you need more than the next breath of air is God, because he's the only one who can keep you from sinning further. 
And so unless you know you've already been forgiven, you won't come to him. But you can come with full assurance of faith, which looks at the cross, and have your heart sprinkled clean. The idea is by looking at the blood which was shed for you. From an evil conscience, and an evil conscience is a guilt complex. You can admit you're guilty without feeling guilty, without condemning yourself, and our body washed with pure water. Now that's the practical implication of redemption. Redemption means that God no longer counts our sins against us, and of course propitiation also means that. All right. I want to show you an illustration, a diagram of propitiation. This is the way I explain it to a non-Christian or to a young believer. Say, look, the Bible says that the whole world is in the slave market of sin and there's only one door to get out. So this box represents the slave market. Now, we know we're slaves of sin from John 8, 34. He that commits sin is the slave of sin. Not only that, we know that we are in Satan's kingdom by birth. The slave master is Satan. Number one, Satan is the father of the unbeliever. John 8, 44. He is the master of the unbeliever. Uh, for Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, says he energizes the spirits of those who are, who are unbelievers. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, For we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We also know that we're in Satan's kingdom of darkness. Darkness meaning completely shut out from the life of God and knowledge about him. That's revealed in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. So Satan is the slave master, and every person born into the world is a slave. X marks the slave. Every man is born into the slave market of sin as a slave, and there's one thing that every person in the first century knew, and that is this. A slave cannot free a slave. A slave cannot free a slave. Only a free man can. Only man who is born free of slavery can free, or one who has freedom can free a slave. Now, the implication of that is this. Here is Buddha. Here is Mahatma Gandhi. Here is Confucius. Here is Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy. Here is Lord Krishna. A slave cannot free a slave. They're all slaves of sin like we are, so they couldn't even free themselves. They can't free anyone else. This is the fallacy, or the folly and the fallacy of religion. A slave cannot free a slave. Here's Muhammad.
Now, into this mass of slaves, there was born a free man, Jesus Christ. No represent the free one. Jesus was born free of sin because he had no human father, therefore the legal responsibility for sin was not passed on to him. Now, there are three qualifications of a Redeemer, and these are set forth in the book of Ruth and in many other passages in the Old Testament where it set forth the kinsman Redeemer. Actually, there are four qualifications. First of all, a Redeemer had to be near of kin. Secondly, a Redeemer had to be a free man. Third, the Redeemer had to have the price of ransom. Fourth, he had to be willing to pay the ransom. Jesus qualified to redeem man from sin in every respect. First of all, he was a free man. He had no sin of his own. Secondly, he's a heir of kin. He became just what we are, a man. Third, he had the price of redemption, which was to be sinless and to be willing uh, and to offer his sinless blood. Blood is a, is a figure or a symbol of a, of a life given. That's why it's made so much of in the Bible. Blood is the symbol of a forfeited life. The value of the blood is directly equal to the value of the person whose blood it is. That's why Christ's blood is the efficacious blood, the only efficacious blood, because he's the only sinless person that ever lived. That's why it's called the precious blood. All right, now, Christ was willing to go and give his life a ransom for men. As it says in uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For the Son of Man came not to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. For the many. All right, and that's exactly what Jesus did. He was born to be a redeemer. He went to the cross. And all of the penalty and consequences of sin were poured out on him, and he fully paid the ransom price. The ransom price is set forth in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 and 19. For as much as you know you were not redeemed or ransomed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from your empty and vain manner of life handed down by religion from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now you see, this was the price of ransom. Now, Jesus has paid the redemption price for every man that would ever live. There's only one thing left, and that is for the slaves to accept the pardon. Here's an illustration of that. A true case history in New York where a young man was convicted of murder. His parents, being influential and wealthy, finally got a stay of execution from the governor and got a retrial. In the retrial, the man was set free. He was given a pardon. So 
this man still sitting on death row had the pardon brought to him, the parents there, and they presented the pardon to this man and he rejected it. He said, I deserve to die. I am guilty. But the pardon was already there. So they took the case back and took it to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that a pardon is not a pardon until it's accepted. And so it is with man. Those who go to hell are going there because they rejected a full pardon that's already been paid. But once man comes and accepts the redemption, he's set free. Romans chapter 6 has a lot to say about that freedom. We'll talk about that when we talk about what happens to a believer at the moment he places faith in Christ. So redemption removes sin as a barrier and slavery to Satan as a barrier and under sin we also put jurisdiction of the law. Romans 7.1 says we're no longer under the jurisdiction of the law. Romans 6.14 says that because we've been set free from the law's jurisdiction that sin will not have dominion over us. If you're under the law it will have dominion over you. The point is, if you're under the law, you don't have to be there. You're there by your own choice, and P.S., you're not under it. Now, the last part of the work of Christ was his substitutionary death. We'll put up here for redemption, by the way, the verse. Let's just put one verse under each one of these. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. You can put 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 if you want to also. By the way, there's one thing that I wanted to point out. Redemption is something that can only be accomplished by God through the death of Christ. And once a person dies physically, the possibility of being redeemed is lost forever. I want you to look at Psalms uh, uh, 49, Psalm 49, verses 6 through 9. There are some who teach the fallacy of reincarnation means that man will someday come back in another life and have a second chance. There are others who teach that men go to a place called purgatory after death, and that's because he was so gross in this life that God couldn't punish him enough in this life. So God, God uh, makes him pay for his own sins in the next life. Boy, is that contrary to the Scripture. That's so contrary to the Scripture that Martin Luther, when he started the Reformation, made the Catholic Church reverse the infallible decisions of the popes up until 1542 A.D. 
because at the Council of Trent they went against all of the papal bulls of the past and declared the apocryphal books to be canonical, to be a part of the Bible. And up until that time, they had never done that. The reason they did that is because from the Bible itself, you can't prove purgatory. But from those books which are never considered to be a part of the Bible, the 13 apocryphal books, which are a part of the Catholic canon today, you can prove purgatory. But the idea of purgatory is diametrically opposed to the whole atonement of Christ and the whole witness of Scripture. And here's a specific statement on it. Psalm 49, verses 6 through 9. Psalm, Psalm 49. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is precious. Why is it precious? Because it took the precious blood of Jesus Christ to, to pay for him. That's why. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceases forever. Ceases forever means that once a man leaves this life, the, the possibility of redeeming the soul ceases forever. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. And so this shows that there's no such thing as buying an indulgence for someone who's already dead, and prayers for the dead are the most meaningless waste of hot air in the universe. Pray for people now. It's too late when they're dead. There's no such thing as redemption after death, and there's no such thing as reincarnation. Once man leaves this life, his eternal destiny has been settled, and there's no possibility of a second chance. Yes. Well, yes. These uh, the question was: Isn't there a place in the gospel where Jesus went to the uh, paradise and ministered to the saints who had died be before? Well, these were believers from the Old Testament. But the people who were in torment, which was the other compartment of Sheol, which is called hell in the English, is a place where all of the unbelievers of all time still are conscious. Oh, absolutely. Millions of Gentiles were saved in the Old Testament. Millions. We'll get to that later. Uh, in general, yes. But I don't want to get into that. <laughs> Not now. That's about three hours worth of lecture in itself. Uh, substitutionary death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. You might add the spiritual death that... One of the things that Christ had to accomplish was also to do away with physical death. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, 
namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is his substitutionary death. Jesus died both physically and spiritually for you and for me in order that having paid the penalty of death, men might be given spiritual life in the new birth at the point of salvation and that our bodies might be raised in resurrection from physical death and given immortality. The body that you're sitting in will one day be immortal and eternal. The very chemicals which now make up your body, though they may be blown to bits over the skies of Vietnam one of these days, or you may be deteriorated in a grave, God will take those very chemicals which are now your body, raise them into an incorruptible form, and I will know you in heaven, because you will bear the resemblance of what you are here on earth, and you're going to know your loved ones in heaven. I'll go into that later, why we know that. But you'll be able to recognize people. And not only that, you know, it's really going to be exciting when Christ comes back and snatches us all up to meet him in the air. Did you know that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that our crown of rejoicing when we're raised up to meet Christ is going to be all of those that we've led to Christ because they will be grouped around us and the ones they've led to Christ will be grouped around them and those will be our crown of rejoicing this is what it says in 1st Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 19 and 20 for who is our hope or our joy or our crown of exultation is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming for you are our glory and our joy. Boy, it's going to be exciting when Christ comes back for some. And that's why I'll tell you one thing. I'm interested in one thing today, and that's to take as many with me as I can. And I'll tell you, I don't have any illusions of cleaning up the fishbowl, but I'm going to fish in it. And I think that our goal should be, as free men, already citizens of heaven, the minute you accepted Christ, you became a citizen of heaven, and eternal life already has begun in every one of you. The very life that's going to continue in the presence of God forever is already in you. 1 John chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. It says that you already have eternal life. And though I'll tell you the thing that we should be concentrating on is not the things of this world, but the things that count for eternity. Building men in the faith and bringing others to Christ and discipling men to move on and do the same. But this substitutionary death made it possible for us to be in the resurrection and for God to give us in regeneration the new birth, a new life. 
Now with this, the, the whole barrier between man and God is removed, and when that is removed, we have the other great word of the New Testament, reconciliation. One meaning, one part of the meaning of reconciliation is that through the cross, Christ has completely removed every barrier that stood between man and God. So that now we can go to man and say, God is not counting your sins against you. You're a sinner. We need to show men that they are sinners so they'll understand salvation. If you don't know what you're being saved from, you can't understand salvation. But then to show, look, your sins are not the issue. The barriers have been removed. The one thing that is the issue to you is that you accept the gift of pardon. We'll talk about reconciliation tomorrow. How exciting it is to be able to go to men who are, are at enmity with God, hate God, and are suspicious of God, and watch them melt before our very eyes as we tell them about the reconciliation, as we tell them, look, God loves you just like you are. He loves you so much he died for you. He's removed every barrier that stands between you and him. And now he offers you a gift of full pardon, and he wants to accept you and love just like you are. And watch that enmity start disappearing. Because it melts the heart of the unbeliever. That's the power of the gospel if you preach it rightly. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ. We thank you that when he stood upon that cross, that he bore the just wrath of a holy God against sin, that he paid the ransom price for my nature of sin, for my thoughts, my words, and deeds of sin. He removed Satan's authority from over me. He took me out from the under the jurisdiction of the law, which I could never keep. He paid the penalty for my death. Now, Father, who can say anything but thank you for your unspeakable gift? In Christ's name, amen. This concludes Hal Lindsay's lecture on Doctrines of Salvation, number 8, Finished Work of Christ, B, Redemption. Please use the fast forward to the end of this tape. Thank you.